Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum Card member with global dining access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't. I never have. I never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners, and I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board podcast, powered by FanDuel. NFL Week 3, Monday Night Football Edition, and we have a barn burner on tap later this evening between the Ravens and Chiefs. But before we get to that big game breakdown, we have plenty of business to transact. I am, of course, your host, Todd Furman, joined, as always, by my esteemed colleague and co-host, the one, the only Payne Insider. Good games yesterday. A lot of them. A lot of them coming down to the final whistle, some working in our favor, some not so much, but uh, definitely an enjoyable Sunday of action, and it's always great to have the National Football League back after what we've been exposed to so far on Saturdays. I think the product's been relatively good. I know the league is quite happy, and you had that initial mandate where they told refs, you know, swallow the flag a little bit here. Could be a little sloppy. But I think the product's been pretty good overall. And tonight, we got another great game. All about playing loose and free, my friend. That's all it's about early on in the season. And as always on Mondays, uh, plenty of things to try and discuss. We'll kick things off with good, bad, and the ugly. We'll get into some look-ahead lines and how oddsmakers have been forced to adjust uh, after three data points for the majority of the league. And, of course, uh, the aforementioned Monday Night Football game between the Baltimore Ravens and the Kansas City Chiefs. Payne, uh, you know, when we look at the way things played out yesterday, I think the most logical jumping off point becomes Sunday night football. Uh, and a New Orleans Saints team that I believe we both anticipated would bounce back from a rather lethargic effort uh, last Monday night against the Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I was sorely disappointed by their inability to get off the field on third downs for New Orleans and some of their play calling, especially at key junctures in that football game. Early on in the game, Drew Brees still looked lost. Like, he's not confident in his weapons. I really felt like once they scored that touchdown into the break, it was worth more than the seven. Because you get the momentum score. Breeze looked like he finally had confidence. They talked throughout the telecast that him and Emmanuel Sanders weren't on the same page. So I just felt like that pass was the one that got him over the hump. Breeze did look more comfortable in the second half. But I'm not sure what's going on with the Saints defense. I don't know what Dennis Allen and that group is doing right now. They returned virtually everyone. Von Bell was the guy that left. They replaced him with Malcolm Jenkins. We thought that was a little bit of an upgrade, even though Jenkins is getting up there in age and is a lesser safety against coverage than he is in the box. But the Saints defense looks miserable. Back-to-back games. Weren't creative enough on Monday night to figure out how to stop Darren Waller. Of course, Belichick did. Thanks. Thanks. (laughs) appreciate that Uh, then again last night it's just like this disappointing defensive effort from the Saints across the board gave up these big untimely plays as you alluded to couldn't stop the Green Bay Packers when it was needed most you had the huge play out of the break where it felt like all the momentum was going their way again you get that score to go into half you can get a quick three and out you probably have the game I don't want to say wrapped up but you're in a good spot at that point and they just couldn't get stops. Now, I know it's a one-game sample size, but, you know, 
third down is a high variance snap and down. The Saints allowed 45% success rate on third down last night. Green Bay averaged over 13 yards on third down through the air. The pass again to Lazard out of the break, I think changed the entire game. And Uh, so... Incredible. I mean, absolutely incredible when you watch that. But I mean, cut you off, so go ahead. No, go ahead. I I, I thought, I, I went to bed at the Taysom Hill fumble. I texted you. I said, I, I kind of, it's been going against us all night with some, some flags and some weirdness. Uh, I see where this is going. I'm going to, I'm going to pass out early. So I'm nice and refreshed for the morning pod. They, uh, I'm still trying to figure that out. New Orleans finally gets their defense to step up. They get a, they get a fourth down stop uh, inside of the 50 yard line on a fourth and what one where Aaron Jones gets bottled up. You pick up eight yards on first down, then all of a sudden we're going to Taysom Hill experiment. I understand him as a change of pace. It's a nice wrinkle, but with nine minutes to go in the game and your offense at least had established some continuity, I don't want to second guess Sean Payton and the Saints offense, but that's exactly what I'm going to do. Why elect to go in that particular direction there? No idea. None. So, so that was that was me throwing in the towel there. I saw that and I said, I'm hopping in bed and I'm getting out of Dodge here. So I, 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 I don't it understand it. I, I think, again, Drew Brees at that point was really starting to get into form. So you took the ball out of his hands. I, I didn't really like that. Weird how they used Taysom Hill last night. And you have to use him, right? That's why you paid him $16 million. But I think you have to use him in better roles. A lot of the weirdness offensively past the initial Drew Brees is out of form stage. Third down, it's like, how many times can you throw behind the sticks on third down? And it wasn't just short of the sticks. It's like sometimes behind the line of scrimmage on third and medium and long. I get Alvin Kamara is a ridiculously talented player, but there's only so many tackles he's going to be able to break. There's only going to be so many guys he can run by. I was not fond of what Sean Payton did last night. I mean, on third and three, I'd rather run the ball between the tackles with Latavius Murray and set up fourth and short than throwing the ball on a bubble screen there, hoping that uh, Alvin Kamara or anybody else are able to break multiple tackles. But either way, uh, you tip your hat to the Green Bay Packers, a prime regression candidate coming into the season, now off to a 3-0 start and finally have their signature win. We'll see how they handle prosperity Monday Night Football when they play host to the Atlanta Falcons, who we'll get to uh, in, in just a few moments. Uh, but other than the How Sunday do you know night, that? I wasn't going to talk about Dan Quinn for a single. Oh, I was going to make you talk about Dan Quinn. Don't worry about it. You don't have a choice. So, <laughs> other than of course the big Sunday night football game, what really stood out in a positive manner in terms of what you saw unfold yesterday? I loved watching the Rams Buffalo game. My two guys, Brian Dayball and, and Sean McVay, both continued excellence. Right, game plans were good. Play design was good. Play calling fantastic. I mean, even in defeat. Sean McVay is is continuing his move forward. 7.3 yards per play for the Rams, 62% success rate, 12 explosive plays. How many times, think about this, Todd, since Doug McDermott has been in Buffalo, has a team gone into the Bills building and done that to their defense? It's, it hasn't happened a lot. I mean, Sean's no. had great game plans. I'm trying to figure out, though, Payne, and I'll admit before uh, you finish up some of your analysis, because I didn't watch uh, more than probably the first quarter, and then it flipped back when the game started to get a little bit squirrely for Bills backers. At 28-3, to what changed in that football game? <laughs> I just thought they got a little more aggressive. The pass protection got a little bit better. They woke up, right? You don't want to use it as an excuse. West Coast team traveling to the East Coast for an early start. But we did mention doing that back-to-back weeks was an element that you had to factor in. Now, I know a lot of people said, oh, it's it's no big deal. They were planning to go back home. Sure, they were going, they were planning to go back home after the initial plan got nixed. There's a reason Sean McVay put in this request to the league that they wanted back-to-back East Coast games so they could stay out there. So the idea that it had absolutely no value or impact is just fundamentally wrong or else they wouldn't have requested it in the first place. So, you know, I think they got off to a little bit of a slow start, finally woke up a little bit, put up nearly 500 yards of offense. And again, I know it comes in defeat, but I'm not downgrading the Rams off that performance, especially with the travel situation. Brian Dayball was also good again. Josh Allen was fantastic. That was actually his best game of the season in terms of accuracy. When you look at Allen's completion percentage, 8% better than expectation. So 
three straight games for Josh Allen. Uh, completion percentage better than expectation. So things are really moving forward and looking up for this Bills offense, Todd, as well. One thing I will say, watching late in that game with Josh Allen, and I love his aggressiveness. He's got that gunslinger mentality. He does have to learn, though, when it's time to just throw the ball away and live to fight another down. He got himself into situations, especially when the Rams had taken the lead that I ultimately thought were going to come back and bite the Bills in the ass. I agree, but he got it done. He did. <laughs> the he third did. and he 22. Was, able- was it third and 22 to Beasley on one of those drives? Uh, I, I thought he was real good. And listen, when you have that type of ability, when you have that size, that type of speed, that arm strength, those are all rare traits for one man to have. And you're going to play a little loose and free. And as long as the accuracy is improved, you're going to let him go out there and let it fly. That, that, that is for sure. And you talk about the offensive explosion we saw there. I, I want to give a team credit because their offense finally looked capable for the first time in three games, albeit coming in a loss. Uh, in the Minnesota Vikings, pain. They average seven and a half yards per play. Kirk Cousins maybe finally has that secondary receiver. I shouldn't say finally. It's been all of two games. Throwing for 238 yards. Adam Thielen took a back seat to rookie Justin Jefferson. Dalvin Cook was outstanding with 180-plus yards. But I begin to wonder, is that the Vikings figuring things out, or is this Titans defense really just that bad despite their 3-0 start? You know my feelings on the Titans defense. Wildly overrated. Vrabel's defense has been wildly overrated since he arrived in Tennessee. Has not fielded a defense that's above league average in efficiency, and I get it. They play this bend-but-don't-break style. But last year, they broke a little bit. And if it wasn't for the resurgence of the offense with Arthur Smith and Ryan Tannehill and them taking massive leaps, we uncovered this. The defense was horrific the final 10 games of the season. Now you're waiting for a Dory Jackson to return from IR. He should be back here pretty soon. But in terms of the Vikings offense, that's going to be much needed as well because the defense is an absolute train wreck. I don't know if it's going to get any better. You would hope it would because the young corners will be a little bit better as the season goes on. Your hope is that Daniil Hunter returns. But if you're the Vikings offense, I think that's got to be the game plan moving forward. You mentioned the seven and a half yards for play, but it's rare you see 12 explosives. And Justin Jefferson finally gets into the fold. And I think that's massive now because defenses just can't roll coverages to Adam Thielen's side and remove him. You also got Delvin Cook involved a little bit more in the pass game, something I've been banging the table for for you know many seasons he needs to be involved in the pass game and not just these little stupid dump offs that come five yards behind the line of scrimmage so positive sign for the vikings offense i would think that that's probably going to continue indoors against the texans defense yeah speaking of the texans a team rather disappointing i'm sure we'll get to them in a few um one other thing that, that really stood out for me, Payne, and I'll be at the final score, I don't know if it was indicative of the way the game went, and I really struggled to figure out and contextualize what I actually saw. The Carolina Panthers, they end a long, long losing streak, but they did finish plus four in the turnover department, settled for way too many field goals when they were in the red zone. Uh, they end up running 23 fewer plays in their opposition, finished minus 12 in the first down department. But again, I don't know if it's an indictment uh, of the Los Angeles Chargers with Justin Herbert making his second career start, or if the Panthers are going to gradually figure things out, especially given life without Christian McCaffrey. I didn't actually watch that game. It was on one of my like tiny screens off in the corner. I'm going to go back and watch it a little bit more. I initially wanted to fade the movement on the total downwards and go over 43, chose not to. While it was the right play, it ended up obviously losing because of those red zone woes you just mentioned. But 302 yards from Carolina's offense. It hasn't been this, to this point, overly explosive. Now, I know you're without CMC, so that hurts a little bit. But Carolina's offense, I think it has potential. I, I really do. We're just waiting for it to to be on full display. It's going to be tough again. Without CMC, Teddy Bridgewater, I know he has that relationship with Joe Brady, but they're still truly learning a new system. Bridgewater's still learning with new parts out there. One thing that they do is they play extremely hard. So I, you have to like that. When you're going into a game and you're back in Carolina as a dog, which took significant sharp money through the seven and a half, 
uh, through the seven rather, open seven and a half, came down. So that was the side. Just tough also for the Chargers, man. Like, so scary laying points with that team. They just seem to throw up on themselves at at every turn. Justin Herbert looked a little bit different, right, when you get to game plan for him. The Chiefs were, you know, caught on their heels a little bit there with Justin Herbert starting minutes before game time. But they moved the ball up and down, a couple costly turnovers. I don't know what to make of them this week, but uh, I was a little disappointed defensively with them. Seems like you can move the ball on this Chargers defense a little more than I thought. I thought this was going to be one of the best defenses in the league. I really did. Now, I know Derwin James is out. But slightly disappointed with what I'm seeing from the Chargers defense. Yeah, and they're going to have to figure things out too because uh, Mr. Bosa on one edge doesn't seem to get nearly the same pass rush when he's the only one you have to contend with and Melvin Ingram expected to miss a couple of games um, yes. coming up as well. Uh, what are some of the other things that stood out for you in the positive manner before we have to go from glass half full to glass half empty? I always like the underdog, man. So I was really impressed with Nick Mullins. And so that's a name that'll probably shock some people hearing this morning, but uh, there's a reason. You go back to the offseason. Kyle Shanahan wouldn't trade Mullins, and multiple teams banged on the door for him. But if you just look, it wasn't overly shocking to me. I, I, I thought about playing the Giants this week. A lot of sharp money on it. I just couldn't get myself to do it. And once it got down to three, I actually leaned the other way. Again, didn't pull the trigger. But if you look at Nick Mullins and remember him, go back to 2018 where he filled in eight games for the 49ers, six of them. Mullins graded out better than an average quarterback in QBR. The 49ers that season finished 10th in offensive efficiency because Mullins uh, really got implemented into the offense, and then there was this resurgence. It's a great luxury to have. And if you look Sunday, Mullins finished 6% above expectation completion percentage. 49ers offense averaged 8.6 yards per pass, 61% success rate, all the drama about field conditions and the 49ers playing with a slew of injuries. Mullins went out there, got a big win for San Francisco. So that was impressive to me, Todd, especially when you can fade all of the sharp guys and and have a result that was so outside of expectation. The one interesting move on that game, uh, for some of our listeners who don't watch the screen, especially in the buildup to kickoff, that I found fascinating was that game actually getting bet over the total. It dipped down as low as 41 and closing that 43.5-44 range, I believe. Simply incredible that the Giants muster a grand total of nine points and the game's still able to go over the total. But I think the Giants have many bigger fish to fry, uh, given what we've seen from them. Fortunately, though, the team they share a stadium with, they're still significantly ahead of uh, in terms of what their capabilities may be for the season. From the good to the bad, pain. By the uh, way, not to cut you off, but you sure. remember the nugget John divulged on Thursday's show. He said that he had actually seen sharp money come in on that total over. Oh, he was he was spot on with that. The one thing we're going to have to ask John about on Thursday is uh, how much they're going to have to inflate these Jets and Giants lines because those are two fan bases that are 100% going to turn. And I have to wonder if there's a third fan base that John will deal to pretty heavily on the East Coast and the Philadelphia Eagles, whose fan base may turn as well. Uh, and for me, Payne, that was a game that we debated. We went, is this a good opportunity to buy low on Philadelphia? That number ultimately got as low as four. We did see the Eagles take money, uh, pretty substantial money at that on game day, got up to six. There was immediate resistance back to five and a half. But this has to go beyond football because Philadelphia looked ill-equipped to do much of anything, regardless of the Bengals having extra time to prepare. That was one I debated all week. And there was a little battle going on there amongst groups. Early in the week when limits got a touch higher, we saw Cincinnati take some money at six. As soon as it got down to soft four, there was a difference of opinion and there was some sharp money on Philadelphia. I actually agreed with the ladder move there from four up. Didn't actually get myself to do it, thank God. But to me, it was more of a perception thing, right? If you looked at the entire board of, of NFL week three and you said, hey, just think about two weeks ago what team on the board had underachieved based upon perception coming into the season the most and it would have been Philadelphia and so I believe my memory serves me correct off the cuff here that line prior to the season was 11 so laying four I said to myself man it's gonna be tough not to do this but Philadelphia struggled they struggled a little bit in the secondary even though they were able to sack Joe Burrow eight times crushed Burrow on one. Malik Jackson almost decapitated the poor guy, but it didn't seem to phase him. 
there's just some issues with Philadelphia, especially on offense. Carson Wentz, I know he kind of saved the game with his legs, but still not having a ton of confidence throwing the ball for some reason. If you look overall, 4.3 yards per play for the Philadelphia offense. Struggle City uh, passing 4.1 yards per play through the air, 38% success rate, just two explosive passes. So there's something going on there, rumblings that it could be internal. So we'll have to see. Big game prime time that will break down against the 49ers on Thursday's show. That is for sure. Uh, other things that really uh, you, uh, you found alarming uh, in terms of pertaining to, to what unfolded. Adam Gase. I don't know what is going on there. I think we absolutely know what Adam Gase is at this point. I would think him and, you know, him and Dan Quinn probably help each other pack their bags here pretty soon. I just don't know what happened to Adam Gase. That's the part that is wild to me. I mean, go back and figure out why he's been getting these head coaching jobs before Miami, before this Jets gig. Gase was winning playoff games against historic franchises like the Pittsburgh Steelers with Tim Tebow. He took the Dolphins to the playoffs with Matt Moore. I don't know this guy. I I think he's gotten probably too predictable, runs just way too much 11 personnel, and I get it. You know, you pair this Jets offense that's got very little weapons with his poor creativity, and then you add on a little slow pace to the mix, and you get these results from Sunday. It wasn't like they were completely out of the game either. They were down just 10 at halftime. And then you look and say, hey, maybe Gase is going to implement some pace here. We're down double digits. No. They're 22nd and second half pace for week three. Offense gained 72 total yards, averaged three yards per play and a 29% success rate in the second half. So Gase made zero adjustments there. And that's exactly how the Colts defense outscores in the final 30 minutes. I I think he's got to go. I really do. And I'm not sure this is one I wait on. I mean, the Jets talking about them, uh, I had a close buddy actually send me a tweet that came from football perspective, and I thought this thing was nuts, Payne. The tweet said, last week the Jets were completely obliterated and yet finished with 29 runs and 33 passes. Against the Colts, the Jets trailing for a good portion of that game still finished with a pretty balanced ratio. You and I love to run the ball as much as anybody else, but you do have to abandon the run when you're chasing a three-touchdown deficit midway through the third quarter. Listen. Gase knows his boy, his man crush, Frank Gore, is trying to eclipse Emmett Smith. <laughs> I think this is all part of the grand scheme here. Well, that would be the only excuse he's got. But you know what? The Jets weren't the only team that put up uh, an anemic performance offensively in the second half. I think the Houston Texans get gold stars for their lock, lack of offensive push uh, as they get shut out by the Pittsburgh Steelers. 15 carries, 29 yards as a team. I mean, you talked about it, said the offensive line coming into the year was supposed to be the strength for the Texans. Hasn't quite been the case. The Steelers run 76 plays compared to the Texans' 47, and all of a sudden Houston is staring down the barrel of an 0-3 start, albeit with a winnable game coming up this weekend and the Vikings headed to town. Couldn't make adjustments. No shock from Bill O'Brien. But in his defense, they are leading in the fourth quarter 21-20, and they are driving and Deshaun Watson did throw up on himself. He's scrambling out of the pocket. He drifts right, throws back across his body for a pick. The game is probably different if Watson holds on to that ball, at least in terms of the cover. But in the second half, you nailed this. Houston's offense, 17 offensive plays. Their defense couldn't stop the run, so they couldn't really get in form or get in a rhythm in the second half. Those 17 plays yielded three yards and an 18% success rate. So that was mostly why the Texans' offense didn't do much in the second half. They were barely on the field. Can you help me make sense of this stat line? I'm not sure if it's good or bad. Mike Evans yesterday for the Tampa Bay Bucks, two catches, two yards, two touchdowns. I'm having a real difficult time trying to figure out exactly what Tampa is and if they're trending in the right direction offensively, if they're underrated defensively. We know the Denver Broncos are highly mediocre, and that might actually be selling stock at the top of the market. But I'm struggling with this Tampa offense, uh, and it was a game that we obviously had a position on. You're, you're feeling challenged? Yeah, I just don't know what Tampa is, <laughs> to say the least. So I'm it's always a team that we know this. It's a team that's figuring out its identity. 
They don't know exactly who they want to be yet. Is it going to be this two tight end offense that runs the ball and uses play action? Are they going to be this spread three wide receiver set with Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, and Scotty Miller? They haven't figured out their identity yet. And that's kind of been the biggest issue. Now, I will say this. In the second half, you should be thanking your lucky stars. <laughs> the offense didn't look very good. Oh, I am. So, don't, get, don't get me wrong. I am. And I'd like to thank Brett Rippin. He may have a nice little uh, holiday gift heading his way. The one-hand pick? That was awesome at the goal line. So I think that's what they're figuring out. They're trying to find their identity. They're not quite sure who they want to be. But I think if you go back to our preseason podcast when we thought Denver might be a little bit better, even though we went under their win total, we thought the early part of the season was going to be tough to navigate, breaking in all these new parts and trying to have this cohesion. And I think you have to be happy overall with where you are at right now if you're a Tampa Bay Bucks fan. Um, and now you're looking at potentially facing a rookie quarterback in his first road start. You're a seven-point favorite here. So I think Tampa's in a good spot. They're going to only get better. And the defense has been absolutely fantastic. I think that's the one thing that they are relying on as well right now. And it's no shock. We said this last year when they brought in Todd Bowles and Casey Rogers. It was going to mean defensive improvement. And sure enough, they finished top five in defensive efficiency last year. I think after this week's performance, they're going to be vying for the top defense in the NFL. So I, I am very impressed with Tampa's defense, and I think the offense is only going to get better. You're, Tom Brady isn't going to stop working at this, right? We no. know he's going he's gonna to put his hand to the grindstone, and he's going to keep rolling. And I, I think the offense is only going to get better as, things, as time moves on here. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting team to watch, especially how the market elects to handle them on a week-in, week-out basis. Uh, I have to imagine if we had John here right now, Tampa winning and covering with relative ease uh, at Denver, not exactly a great decision. For the house. Last Took but not least. Took some sharp least, money too, right? Uh, yeah, Denver did take some sharp money. Yeah. Yep. That, that they did. Last but not least, Payne, this segment wouldn't be complete if we didn't cover the Atlanta Falcons' second straight collapse where they had a win probability north of 99%. And while we can say what we want about <laughs> Dak Prescott and the Cowboys' high-powered offense coming back, I'm not quite sure how Dan Quinn gets himself out of a meat grinder uh, for the effort the Falcons put forth in the fourth quarter against the Chicago Bears. If Arthur Smith is smart, he has someone put Dan Quinn in a meat grinder. I mean, Arthur um, Blank's got to know some people. He's got Home Depots all over the place. <laughs> it's good. You took that analogy and ran with it. I like it. I figured that was going to go under the radar. Um, listen, I, I, I don't I don't know. Like, blows another lead. 26 to 10 with under seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter. I guess hat tip to Nick Foles as well comes in once he got kind of used to game speed he was fantastic in the fourth quarter but if you look bears had 190 yards in the fourth quarter against dan quinn's defense six explosive plays in the fourth quarter alone again and this is another coach i just don't know how you can keep quinn at this point week one if you actually follow this timeline quinn admitted after the game that he didn't think or expect seattle would throw as much as they did so Dan Quinn had an entire offseason to maybe read an article, maybe talk to someone that had a clue, and admitted that uh, he was unprepared for Seattle's game plan. He was the only guy in the world that didn't know Seattle might actually throw a little more this year. Then in week two, the defense blows a 39-24 lead with under five minutes to go. And then yesterday again, blows a 26-10 lead with less than seven minutes to go. Hopefully again, Arthur Blank is... Uh, thinking about this long and hard and he eventually fires Dan Quinn whenever that is and maybe he goes the other route you have to bring in an offensive minded coach that hopefully can pair with Matt Ryan and Julio Jones so they can be put in the best positions to succeed knowing their careers are both winding down here I feel bad for those two guys because they're being burnt right now for no reason what I have seen from Brian Dayball if that continues at minimum he should be getting an interview as the Falcons' next head coach. Something's got to change down there in Atlanta, and uh, it's got to change quickly because there's no way Atlanta should be 0-3 right now. They should be 2-1 neck and neck with the Tampa Bay Bucks atop that division and, and sitting in a very good position given the struggles we've seen with the Saints. But alas, you are what your record says you are, like Bill Parcells told us. It doesn't necessarily apply in gambling, but it sure as shit does apply for coaches' job security. 
Uh, that is for sure. One last game pain, and I'm not sure where we wanted to put it in terms of good, bad, or ugly, but I felt worth hitting on was the uh, marquee game Sunday afternoon uh, that ended with the Seahawks ultimately uh, beating the Cowboys 38-31. Dak Prescott a huge day. Seattle secondary continues to underwhelm, but Russell Wilson... Uh, You just can't give this guy any time because he's going to be able to drop the ball into a bucket. And he was mediocre at best by his high standards for the better part of two and a half quarters. Yeah, it didn't matter when the game was on the line. Finds DK Metcalf in the end zone, uh, ultimately converts a two-point conversion, and Seattle gets out of dodge with a narrow victory. What a wild game that was. I wasn't quite sure what I was watching. From the DK Metcalf play to Seattle being up 15 and Brian Schottenheimer channeling his inner self and going back to his old ways with lots of first and second down running allowing Dallas to effectively get back in the game Dak making some mistakes probably should have had another interception the ball hits the guy in the chest he kicks it up in the air and then Gallup catches there's just a lot of weird stuff there even one of the uh, the final drives from Seattle it's a five point game closing spread five and a half Dallas gets the stop. Some nincompoop (laughs) hits Russ Wilson high after the play. Redo the two-point conversion. That was a big two-point conversion. A lot of money swung on that, I would assume. So I'm not quite sure what I'm looking at here. McCarthy still struggling (laughs) with game situations. (sighs) Two teams that have some holes. I think they have good quarterback play that's going to need to be elite for these two teams to kind of really move forward. I'm not sure what Seattle's defense is at this point. They struggle to get pressure. Jamal Adams looks like he's banged up. Not sure what that injury situation looks like. Russ Wilson did get a little flustered yesterday when the pressure was on. So it was good to at least see Dallas start to be able to get some pressure on quarterback, something that they had lacked the first two games. I don't know what else I took away from that game. I was pleasantly happy with the score there. That's all I can say. I was going to say, if getting pressure only allows Russell Wilson to throw five touchdowns, I wonder what he would have done from a clean pocket all afternoon. Yeah, you know, listen, he had the five touchdowns, had the great one to lock it, should have had another one to DK, obviously. There were some nice short touchdowns around the goal line that were pretty strategic, right? We're going to we're gonna use play action around the goal line, use my reputation uh, in a positive manner because everyone thinks if I'm Brian Schottenheimer, I'm going to pound the line of scrimmage with Chris Carson. Instead, you got some play action there. Overall, though, if you're looking at Seattle's offense, you know, 6.7 yards per pass, it wasn't typically what we saw from Russ. As great as the touchdown passes were, he did look flustered a couple times, which typically we we don't see from Russ. And again, it kind of came in around that time where they're up 15. It kind of felt like they fell asleep a little bit. They weren't continuing to attack. If they continued to attack this game wouldn't even have been close. I really, truly believe that. Even there was that little lull there right before halftime where Brian Schottenheimer's got to get the runs in. I think there was a stretch where there wasn't a complete pass, but there was like five straight penalties (laughs) on the Cowboys secondary. And that's the reason why we encourage more passing. It's not just because it's more efficient, but it's kind of where the league's headed and the rules that they have changed benefit passing. So even if you're not completing the ball, we see the benefit of throwing the ball. You can get and pick up chunk yardage via penalty. Interesting football game, but much like you, I was left more scratching my head than anything else. I don't think it proved anything to us we didn't already know about those two football teams. And Dallas at this juncture, pretty fortunate to be Owen or pretty fortunate not to be Owen three. They played a couple of close games. We'll see how the Cowboys ultimately look when they do get healthy. From the good, the bad, the ugly, and what we saw so far in week three to some of the look-ahead numbers that are out there, Payne. And you have seen a move uh, between the Bengals and Jaguars. Look-ahead number here had the Bengals a two-and-a-half-point home favorite. At FanDuel right now, you're talking about the Bengals, a three-point chalk trending towards three-and-a-half. Don't want to spend a lot of time on these games, but just wanted to get your quick takes. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know we saw Jacksonville throw up on themselves in prime time. And that price of them laying three points on Thursday night was a little off. So I think this is partly a recalibration of what the Jaguars are. And we we hit on that on Thursday night. We said, hey, listen, it's a completely different ball game covering numbers as touchdown plus dogs than it is going out there and trying to win out games outright and do so by more than the largest key number of three. So we're seeing that element here. But Cincinnati looks like 
they're a little competent on offense now. Joe Burrow is looking good. Again, gets sacked eight times, pounded all game, keeps fighting back. T. Higgins is inserted into the lineup. John Ross, a healthy scratch. So, you know, they're doing some things offensively that I do like to see. And you would expect, finally, to have some key cogs back on the defensive line for this one. So I think that's partly why we're seeing this shift. Also, early morning steam on this over here from 44.5-45 out to 47.5. So a lot of games moving this morning. One hell of a market these days when totals start to fly off the handle first thing Monday morning. Uh, I miss the good old days where numbers didn't start to move until Thursday, but I think that ship has long since sailed. Um, When we look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers playing host of the Chargers, one of the bigger moves here. Look-ahead number had Tampa a five-point favorite. As of Monday morning, you're looking at Tampa a seven-and-a-half-point chalk at FanDuel. This is a better role for the Chargers as an underdog and not a favorite. Intrigued to see where this... Only bet the Chargers on the road. I'm sorry, say that one more time. I said you can only bet the Chargers on the road. You can't consider them at home ever. (laughs) I think the interesting part here is obviously Justin Herbert is likely the quarterback by all things, by all indications. We'll see. I I thought I had heard last week that they weren't going to rush Tyrod Taylor back after the, uh, the punctured lung. But this will be his first road start against a very, very difficult defense. So, uphill battle there. That's all I really have on this one. You obviously go through the key number. Intrigued to see where this total potentially goes. But, uh, nothing here for me. Probably a game we might we might throw on the Thursday card. Yeah, I think it might sneak, it, might sneak its might way sneak into in the next. We have, to yeah. go to the R, we have to go to the R&D team, our focus groups, and figure out you know which fan bases it resonates with most before we ultimately make our choices. Uh, this game, this game will not make it uh, to the Thursday card. The Los Angeles Rams, a twelve and a half point favorite at FanDuel, as they play host to the much maligned New York Giants, who avoided our ire this morning because we wanted to give the 49ers credit and pick on the Jets instead. Look ahead number here had the Rams a modest nine and a half point favorite. So through the key of ten, Rams are going back home. Now again, this is this is a difficult number to navigate at twelve and a half, but you have to like everything that you have seen from the Rams so far. Again, I mentioned it at the top, even in defeat, there's not a prayer in hell that I'm downgrading the Rams off that loss. And I think a lot of professional bettors are going to have the same sentiment here. But it will be interesting to see at what point, at what number, do the Giants start to attract some money. I'm not sure when that's going to be, but uh, at some point you would have to think that that would make some sense. I mean, we're at at 13 now, Todd. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Rams, along with most likely the Ravens, will be the two most popular survivor choices for week four. It'll be interesting to see how the Rams do it. I can tell you, uh, candidly speaking, that had the Rams come back and beaten Buffalo, I had a giant green marker to circle, star, check, do whatever the hell you have to do to try and make a case for the Giants. The uh, tenor of this game now does change quite a bit, though. Uh, The Rams a little bit pissed off, knowing that the pass interference call late in the game in Orchard Park, changed the dynamic of a potential 3-0 start. And last but not least, Payne, uh, we've seen the Sunday night football game start to move a little bit. Look ahead number here had the 49ers a 3.5-point favorite. At last check at FanDuel, you were talking about San Francisco, a 5.5-point favorite when we started recording, but that number now out to 6 at FanDuel. Obviously another disappointing performance from the Eagles. Maybe getting out on the road, getting the hell out of town is something that could bode well here question mark on who the starting quarterback will be for the 49ers obviously we talked about Nick Mullins closer to the top of the show fantastic performance not that large of a downgrade from Jimmy G but it's possible that Jimmy G does return for this game we we will see I would have to think if this got to seven as ugly as it may look and appear that would be appealing to some (laughs) Uh, always interesting to see which way the market will go, uh, especially Monday. As you mentioned, a number of key injuries that we're going to keep tabs on throughout the week, which will change the dynamic of that handicap. But from speculation to the biggest game on the board for all of week three, it is the Baltimore Ravens, a three and a half point home favorite at FanDuel, playing host to the Kansas City Chiefs. Total on this game, Payne sits at 54 and a half. We've seen the money line right around minus $1.75, take back 55 
and this number has kind of moved all over. We saw some of the sharpest shops out there get as high as four. We've seen movement on the first half. When you begin to look at a matchup of this magnitude, knowing the coaching familiarity, as John Harbaugh served as an assistant on Andy Reid's staff in Philadelphia, I'm not even sure which angle we want to address first in terms of breaking down some of the matchups we're going to see on full display tonight. It's a, it's a really, really good game. Um, we're, we're apparently watching history. I saw something come across the old Twitter this morning that said this is the first time two MVP quarterbacks under the age of 26 will go against each other in prime time. So we're going to be watching history tonight. When we did our preview shows, I, I divulged that we were opening the season with Baltimore power rated as the best team in the league. And there was multiple reasons for that, but the main one was Baltimore style. It's just a lot easier to get in form and rhythm in a shortened off season if you're a run first team. Running the ball is just way easier to execute without repetition and preparation than passing is. And you know, if you're a loyal listener to the show, you've heard me say, you know, a couple times since August that you know, 75 to 85 percent of offensive preseason work at training camp is focused on the passing game. It just takes much more precision and timing. And so I think when we look at this line, Todd, when you look at KC, when you look at Baltimore, obviously both undefeated, but their production levels have been much different. The Chiefs don't look like the offense we've grown accustomed to the first two weeks. Small sample, so I'm not overly concerned yet. But if you're actually digging into these games, tonight's line probably not as shocking as some are are making it out to be. And it's mostly because Kansas City's offense hasn't quite had that same pop, Todd. Are you surprised with the amount of folks and talking heads, you know, hey, they they do what they want. They're going to clamor for Patrick Mahomes, who's never actually failed to cover uh, as an underdog. Uh, But some people out there that are looking to try and gobble up the three and a half, is it more based on principle, in your opinion, as we see the number? Every time it gets there, there starts to be major resistance. Is it perception? I mean, what are some of the things that you see factoring into this number kind of ping-ponging between that three, three and a half? So anytime that you can get Patrick Mahomes plus three and a half, I think that's going to be appealing to a lot of betters. Now... The books were in a tough spot because they took immediate sharp action on the Ravens. And so they were forced early in the week to move. And as an odds maker, if I were on that side of the counter, I think a book like Chris is doing the right thing here. We want to use Baltimore at minus three, minus 25, because you're going to prevent professionals from probably entering the market. That that 25 cent VIG is sometimes a caution or stop sign to professionals who are price sensitive. But I'm also not giving my recreational betters the chance at a hook. So that's how I would have navigated this, knowing that early money from professionals on the favorite Monday night primetime game, public's going to be on the dog here, don't want to give them the hook as well. So that's kind of why this line and this game is really intriguing to me because, again, I don't think the line is mispriced at all. But books are going to have to navigate this number a little bit. But, uh, you know, I think when we look at Kansas City's offense, do we want to start there? Yeah, I think it makes sense. I mean, to try and figure out how Patrick Mahomes and company will attack Martindale's defense. Mahomes said the Texans and Chargers played them differently than last season and their blitz types changed as well. Teams have been playing to keep things in front, and I think that's why it's a little surprising to see the Chiefs struggle to a degree, is they were good last year against just about every defense. If you go back to 2019 numbers, the Chiefs faced 254 snaps of zone defense. They generated a 56% success rate, 9.6 yards per pass attempt, and their EPA was 0.44 per snap against zone. So nearly a half point was expected from the Chiefs offense anytime a snap was run against zone. But if you look against man, the Chiefs faced 219 snaps, had a 54% success rate, 8.2 yards per pass attempt, and their EPA dropped a touch down to 0.29. Through two games, though, in 2020, the Chiefs are struggling against zone. KC's EPA is down to 0.04 compared to 0.53 versus man. So nearly a half point better per play against man. We know the Ravens play loads of man. So let's see how Baltimore elects to defend tonight. If they stay true to their man principles 
or if they're going to throw a few different wrinkles at Mahomes like he's been seeing throughout the first two games of the season. Bottom line, though, everything is down across the board for Kansas City. The offense hasn't had much pop with defenses playing to keep things in front. This is also making its rounds, Todd, since we introduced it on the podcast last week, is there's some speculation that with all of the hamstring injuries going around, the soft tissue injuries that seem to be happening to every team around the league, that Andy Reid didn't want his receivers constantly running deep routes. We'll see if that's reality or not tonight. But you can tell by most of Mahomes' numbers, the ball simply isn't being pushed down the field at all right now, whether it's because of defenses that are trying to play to keep things in front, or if it's Andy Reid limiting the route depth, or if it's a combination of both. Whatever it is, you're looking at Mahomes right now, and everything is down from him statistically as a passer as well. You look at average intended air yards, just 6.1 air yards for Mahomes. That's two and a half yards lower than last season. Go back to 2018, that's a full three yards lower. Mahomes' aggression also looks to be down a little bit. And you start to mesh those numbers with some of the metrics like explosive passing. Only three explosive passes from Patty Mahomes and the Chiefs offense so far. Most of those off the top of my head, if you think back, was in that second half when they're playing catch-up against the Chargers. So it really isn't being dictated by the initial script to push it down the field either. You just wonder what we're going to see from the Chiefs' offense. You know, I'm really intrigued to see how Baltimore elects to defend KC. What they've done in the first two meetings hasn't been the right recipe, using nothing but man and being uber-aggressive, especially, you know, tonight we know Tevin Young is out. He's one of the more valuable members of the Ravens' secondary. This has to be about the Ravens' offense, though. Getting out to a decent-sized lead the last two times that these two teams have played it's been opposite. The Chiefs were up 20-6 to in the second quarter last year. In 2018, the Chiefs led after the first quarter and halftime. The Ravens have to get out early here. The offensive line hasn't been great as well. Mahomes that's has been... What, and, and that's what I wanted to actually ask you about, Payne, uh, with the offensive line. Do you think Baltimore's able to, act, to get pressure, knowing that Mahomes, if there's one knock, you look at some of his numbers during his career, he's only a well above average instead of excellent when he's pressured more than 25% of the time. I think that's the key that, you know, you're looking at tonight as well, right? You got to get some pressure on Mahomes, make him a little uncomfortable. And I'm just surprised because this is a Chiefs offensive line that was pretty damn good. And they went out and they added Osemele, who's been fantastic for them, on the cheap. Mitchell Schwartz has been a disaster so far. So I think he's got to perform just a little bit better. But again, you just wonder, is it timing? Is it the rhythm of the offense? I get that all these parts have been together for a while now, but you have to think it's a little bit to do with this condensed offseason and all the passing, You know how much more difficult it is to be a passing team early in the season with an offseason like we've endured. So I think we hopefully will see a little bit better of a performance from the Chiefs tonight. But you're right. It's all about pressure. We know Wink loves to blitz. Did it last year at a nearly 55% rate. I think we'll see some of that if the pressure isn't getting home naturally. The hope in signing Clay's Campbell this year was that you could get a little bit more natural pressure that Wink wouldn't have to send blitz as much. But certainly, if you can get pressure on Mahomes, it's going to go a long way. I'm actually curious, too, to see what we get from the Chiefs' ground game. Clyde Edwards-Alaire, of course, was the flavor of the week for his performance uh, and his rookie debut against the Houston Texans. Didn't look to provide that same element running the football last weekend against the Chargers. Uh, and you wonder if Baltimore is going to try and take away something that Kansas City does. If you can make them semi-one-dimensional, it definitely allows you to bring pressure. But on the other side of the ball pane, clearly the Baltimore Ravens offense has picked up right where it left off in terms of regular season proficiency. Uh, when you look at what Lamar Jackson has been able to do, completing more than 75% of his passes, yet to get into the end zone running the football, Four touchdowns, though, and no interceptions, with Hollywood Brown being the primary beneficiary. But Baltimore can come at you in waves, and they've been, in my opinion, rather reluctant to unveil their shiny new toy and rookie running back in the form of J.K. Dobbins. Is this the game where we see a steady dose of Ingram, or maybe a heavier dose of Dobbins, knowing that Kansas City has allowed 150-plus rushing yards per game, 27th in the NFL, and tackling was optional last week when they took on the Chargers? 
I'm not sure what they're doing with the rotation of backs, but I know they run the ball so much that they want to keep guys fresh. Maybe they are waiting to unleash Dobbins. Certainly a little more explosive than Ingram, that's for sure. But this side of the ball to me has far less unknowns. You know, we know what the Ravens want to do offensively. They want to be a ground and pound team. Then they want to hit the big play through the air once you've been forced to sell out a little bit to stop the run. I'm intrigued to see what Steve Spagnuolo comes up with. He is really creative. He typically has a ton of wrinkles. His defenses change weekly. They look different each and every game. He's a guy that, you know, caters his game plan to the opponent they're facing and doesn't just say, hey, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, which is, you know, a breath of fresh air. I think that's how you should be operating. So Spagnola has been really, really good the last season plus since he joined uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. Where the Chiefs have struggled, though, and you mentioned this and hinted at it, is they've struggled to stop the run. It's kind of how their defense is built. They assume that they are going to play with a lead, so they would rather have a defense that's better getting after the quarterback and better in coverage than one that's typically stout against the run because you're going to get after the quarterback when you have leads. That's the vital part of this game. Baltimore has to play with a lead, and if they do... They're going to have some success here because Kansas City right now, 26th in defensive rush efficiency, 27th in rushing success rate defense. Once they attempt to sell out to stop the run or are forced to put another guy in the box, we know that's when Baltimore likes to hit you with the big play. And that's also been a problem for the Kansas City defense. They're secondary right now, 30th in explosive pass defense. So everything that Baltimore does well offensively is where the Chiefs struggle. On top of that, Todd, when you have a quarterback like Lamar Jackson, you're going to want to make sure you bring him to the ground, obviously. The Chiefs have been horrific with their tackling, and that could really hurt in a game like this. Kansas City right now through two games, 29 missed tackles. If you exclude the week three data, uh, because all teams aren't on the on the same playing field, but you want to make them on the same playing field, right? Have two games of data size there. The Chiefs had the second most missed tackles uh, coming into week three. They only trailed the Jets. So now, I don't I think, think that's, that's company you want to keep, Payne. No, it, it's not. So, you know, you're looking at this. It's vital that, that the Ravens offense get out early. They've been dominant on the ground, make some guys miss, hit the big play over the top, and it, it obviously sounds easy. The one thing that does give me just a touch of concern also is Lamar Jackson, like Mahomes, is seeing more pressure through two games. And they lost Marshall Yonda last year. Uh, to retirement in the offseason. Skura is back, uh, but he's working his way back, right? Torn ACL, MCL, PCL, dislocated the knee 10 months ago. So he hasn't been the best. If you look at the opener against a comparable defensive line in Cleveland that can get pressure, Lamar is pressured on 48% of his dropbacks. It doesn't get any easier tonight with, with Chris Jones and Frank Clark, but the key is keeping Lamar Jackson clean because right now through two weeks, When he's kept clean, 81% completion percentage. The other thing that is intriguing here and is an advantage for Baltimore, and you have to be a real stat geek to like this, but Baltimore's offense, even though they're pretty diverse with their formations, they do really, really well running from three wide receiver sets. And last year, Baltimore had a 55% success rate, averaged 6.3 yards a carry when running the ball with three wide receivers on the set. Very, very wild to see. The Chiefs' defense was miserable defending runs from three wide sets last season, and through two games, it hasn't changed. Casey's given up two rushing touchdowns, a 59% success rate uh, from runs with three wide receivers on the field. The other thing that's a touch interesting here, and we'll see if it has any merit, it's a little more narrative-based, but Jordan Tiamu, who is the scout team quarterback, you'll remember him at Ole Miss, And the St. Louis Hawks of the XFL. Yeah, he has been playing the role of Lamar Jackson for the scout team. And they think, and I say they, Kansas City believes that that's going to help tremendously. That Tiamu's done a great job this week preparing them for Lamar Jackson. Now, my eyes always told me that Tiamu played faster uh, at Ole Miss. But I looked at his 40 time, it's 4-8. So it's gonna if he's a true four eight, <laughs> scout team probably didn't get a great look, but I, it, <laughs> they think it should help. But Lamar is a legit like four four guy. 
but they believe it's going to help tonight. So let's see if that's the case. But it was an interesting little nugget that I read and, and Kansas City felt confident that that was going to help them defend Lamar a little better tonight. You hate to talk about some of this hyperbole and the intangibles and everything else, but knowing you're going to have just one team that gets a bye with the new playoff format. We know Kansas City is the defending Super Bowl champs. The Ravens flamed out uh, as double-digit favorites in their only playoff game a season ago. Do you feel this game just happens to mean that much more to Baltimore, whether it's proving to themselves or the rest of the league, knowing that Lamar Jackson hasn't beaten Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs have had the best of the Ravens, that they need to go out there, get off to a quick start, and force Kansas City out of their comfort zone? Although Kansas City, I don't think they have a comfort zone since double-digit comebacks are just what Patrick Mahomes does. Absolutely. This game has a ton of meaning to it because you alluded to it. The winner of this effectively is up a game and a half, and there's only one bye from each conference this year. I know Baltimore (laughs) has this one circled. This is one game that they were happy to see it come at the early portion of the schedule. And again, it goes back to my mindset that running is going to be a little bit more easier than passing this year. And I think, again, that's partly why we had Baltimore power rated from the onset higher, starting to see a lot of other guys come around to that heading into week three. But yeah, it's very important to win this game. This is one that they haven't been able to get over the hump on, and they know how valuable the buy is. So this is a monster, monster win for whoever gets it. And as you, <laughs> to your point at the top here, Baltimore's taking a little sharp money. I'm intrigued to see where this eventually closes. If this closes three and a half, it's going to tell you a lot on how strong the Baltimore position is holding down the public and books still being willing to go to that three and a half, knowing the public is pouring in on Patty Mahomes and the Chiefs. Well, exactly. And I think this game takes on at least a similar look and feel as far as the odd screen is concerned to last night's game between Green Bay and New Orleans, where the general public saw Aaron Rodgers as a dog. They had a chance to grab him plus three and a half, did so. Uh, And from the folks I spoke to, the recreational bettors weren't taking the three and a half. They were just betting the Packers on the money line. Uh, I think it's a rinse and repeat type scenario here where you may have a number of books hoping that somehow the Ravens win this game by one, two or three points uh, if they're able to hold their foot in the sand and keep this game at just a field goal rather than dangling that hook out there. Makes a lot of sense. So... We shall see what happens uh, real quickly on the total in this game, Payne. We did see it open 52 at FanDuel, get out to 54.5. More public money if professionals have anything that you've seen as far as making a case for the over-under here based on pace, tempo, or a variety of other variables. Yeah, early in the week there was some sharp money on, on Kansas City. So we're, we're starting to see those, those Monday moves. A lot of them have not been bought and back. So I think the mindset is that if the Ravens get out quick here, that it forces Mahomes and the Chiefs to play a little bit of catch up. And that typically is their best role. And I know you mentioned Mahomes struggling a little bit against pressure, but overall where Mahomes seems to be at best is is in the fourth quarter. So I think when you try to figure out the game theory of this is if Baltimore gets out and it forces the Chiefs to play catch up, that seems to be a role where, where they're best suited for. I also saw that uh, it looks like Sammy Watkins is likely to play, responded well to the concussion stuff late in the week. So that'd be another weapon that, that the Chiefs have at their disposal. So I don't know, ultimately, if there's going to be another position here taken on this total if they decide to come back. That I don't know. But I know early in the week that uh, the over was was the play, but it came at 52. So a little bit different now at 54 and a half. 55 is a key. So it'll be interesting to see if it, if it gets over that, that key number. Should be one hell of a game and a rare Monday Night Football treat for all of us to sink our teeth into when you see the Chiefs, when you see the Rams, when you see the Ravens and some of the other more high-profile teams with superstars and a lot of star power on the sidelines as well. Really looking forward to this one. As always, you can follow Payne on Twitter at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. You can follow me there. Most importantly, though, be sure to follow the podcast at BetTheBoardPod. Payne, any uh, final nuggets, tidbits, words of wisdom, life advice, nutrition tips, anything you'd like to share before we come back and do it all again 48 hours from now talking about the college football slate? No, nothing. Good to go. Got it all out. Hey, man, a few words, and it's not often I can say that. Best of luck to all of you, our loyal listeners. 
with whatever way you choose to approach Monday Night Football between the Chiefs and Ravens. And regardless of which way you go, hopefully we'll see you at the window. Thanks for listening to Bet the Board. You can catch Todd and Payne every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday during football season, breaking down the biggest NFL and college football games. And to make sure you don't miss any free best bets, subscribe to Bet the Board on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.